0: 847 is 366 and 7. Hello and welcome to A Score to Settle, a podcast about movie and TV music. I'm your host, Brian McVicker. Each episode, I focus on music composed for film and television, whether through analyzing a specific score... Uh, taking a deep dive into a particular composer's work, or by way of interviews with guests, uh, both those in the industry and also fellow fans. In this episode, my focus is on composer Elmer Bernstein, um, by way of a recurring segment that I like to call Listening To. Uh, as it will spotlight a specific composer, uh, whether it's uh, their, the tenets of their overall style or maybe a particular um, chapter in their career or a particular genre um, or, and, and maybe even a particular year of their career. Uh, I enjoy figuring out uh, what are those tenets, uh, those aspects, the defining features of a notable composer um, in uh, movie and TV music. Uh, Essentially trying to sort of figure out what makes them sound like them. You know, what makes a Bernard Herrmann score sound like a Bernard Herrmann score or John Barry, or Thomas Newman or Jerry Goldsmith and others? Um, What are those aspects that you can listen for that you can uh, try to follow and track, Uh, whether it's certain instruments, um, maybe a particular musical structure, or it could just be how they approach a project and maybe how they approach it musically is very unique to them. Uh, so I like these segments uh, because I think they're good introductory segments if uh, anyone was curious uh, to know, you know about a particular composer, you know, if uh, what, they, what they can listen for in their music if it's new to them. So while this isn't going to be a complete biography on Elmer Bernstein or an overview of his entire career, um, I did want to begin just by mentioning that uh, he was born in New York in 1922. And he studied classical composition and piano. And uh, it was interesting, it was during his time as a, as a pianist um, that Aaron Copeland actually um, noted him and uh, kind of recommended him for, uh, in order to get work as a, uh, as a concert composer. Um, he also spent time in the war. Um, he, uh, basically, it was during his time in the war, he became an arranger for the Glenn Miller Band And uh, then after that was when he actually uh, slowly entered the uh, film music industry. Um, He began his film scoring career basically in the early 1950s, and uh, he started out, um, you know, with a lot of, uh, you know, several B-movies, but he's kind of part of the second generation of composers in the industry. So, you know, the first generation, the godfathers of movie music, Max Steiner, Alfred Newman, Eric Wolfgang Korngold, those guys came along at the start of uh, cinema right there, you know, in terms of the, the sound uh, when the you know, sound came to film in the late 20s. And then they defined, you know, and um, introduced the art of music applied to film. So Steiner, Alfred Newman, Korngold, um, Dimitri these ki- these guys are the, the first generation there, like I said, the godfathers of movie music. And then the second generation, um, you've got composers like Elmer Bernstein, and um, you've got Alex North and Leonard Roseman, a few others uh, that came along. And so they've got that example out there um, to, to draw from, but then they're also sort of incorporating what's happening in popular music at that time. And what I wanted to talk about with Elmer Bernstein was um, he had real defining chapters in his composing career. Um, You know, a lot of times composers can talk about typecasting, um, and, you know, it can affect any of them at any time, you know, and, and they can kind of get stuck in a rut, or they become known as the guy for this kind of picture. And what's interesting about Elmer Bernstein is that he went through, and he's talked about. You know, he talked about this in other interviews, but you know, a jazz period. Uh, then he went through westerns, and then he went through uh, comedy. Um, and what I wanted to talk about today was like those chapters um, in his career, and and also how his style still. Uh, permeated through all of that, um, and that you can still, you know, listen to a score of his that's sort of infused with jazz colors and tell that it's an Elmer Bernstein score, or you can listen to a score of his from a Western and still identify those uh, features of Elmer Bernstein and, and what he brought to his music. And, you know, what I would like to start with as far as uh, discussing the different uh, chapters of his career as uh, jazz, uh, the time when he was known as the jazz guy, and then, uh, go into the, the Westerns, and then hopefully I will make it to that comedy, uh, when he became known as the comedy guy, sort of in the late 70s and, and throughout, you know, um, most of the 80s, um, but with jazz, it kind of started for him, um, or it started in the 50s, um, and, uh, like I said, early in his career, he, he did some B movies, um, And then in 1955-56, he kind of had back-to-back hits that are radically different. Um, In 55, he had Man with a Golden Arm, which uh, stars Frank Sinatra um, as a character named Frankie Machine, who's a a jazz drummer and is also addicted to heroin. Um, And that kind of started the jazz chapter of his career. And then the next year, he did The Ten Commandments, the Cecil B. DeMille uh, epic, uh, which was a huge success and kind of for a little, for a short time he became known as the religious epic guy um but with the with man with the golden arm that kind of um, cemented him for the next you know 10 to 15 years as one of those composers in Hollywood to go to for a jazz-inflected score uh, there were other you know composers doing uh, jazz or and and bringing jazz colors into their music uh, like Alex North did in uh, a streetcar named Desire in 1951 um, but Elmer Bernstein kind of had his own, you know, slant on it. So what I want to do is kind of start with Man with a Golden Arm, um, introduce his theme, and then talk about, uh, the tenets of Bernstein's style that you can listen for there and then, um, in subsequent scores. Uh, so what I like to do is start with, uh, the Man with a Golden Arm. And with this theme, I, 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 find that, uh, it has a lot of swagger to it. Um, it's a very confident Theme, but there's this underlying anger to it. I feel like there there's some there's frustration that's sort of boiling under that you can kind of get with these really high uh, trumpet lines, and I think that represents Frank Sinatra's character's anger at life and frustration with his addiction um, and not being able to escape it. Um, but we can hear a little bit of that here um, in "Man with the Golden Arm" from 1955. One of the things that I uh, want to point out with that theme that I think becomes a strong aspect of his, of Elmer Bernstein's music throughout his whole career is rhythm. I think he had a strong rhythmic quality throughout his music, um, you know, regardless of the, the genre. And uh, he didn't always rely on it, but it gave his music a real propulsive quality um, and a real swinging kind of quality. But um, you'll find uh, that in, in so much of his music, there is this great um, rhythmic uh, aspect, and a lot of times it's syncopated, uh, which you'll kind of hear when we get to the the westerns. Um, but uh, that's something that I think the, the rhythmic aspect is definitely something that you'll find throughout a lot of his music. And then the other, some of the other aspects that um, I find, I think his music's very. Approachable. I think his music is very listenable um, And very tuneful. Uh, I think throughout his career the music that he wrote I think um, lent itself uh, to to sort of um, Being able to stand apart from the movies that he was scoring um, Because they were so tuneful um, And a lot of times maybe not so much in with the Golden norm, but um, his music was more uh, was very open and I um, uh, sort of broad and, and a lot of times joyous um, I think you'll find, you know, especially as you get into his westerns that He didn't work in a lot of dense Harmonies, he worked in a lot of open Harmonies, uh, fourths and fifths uh, that, that kind of structure that makes the music sound a little more open and, and approachable, like I said uh, And I think those qualities carry through so much of his music uh, There's the rhythmic quality and that approachability uh, the, the openness and the, the tuneful nature um, but, uh, let's go through with another, uh, jazz option. So, you know, that was 1955 man with a golden arm. Um, and, you know, like I said, you know, f- throughout the fifties and then and the sixties, and even, you know, even turn the early seventies, he, you know, he, he was called upon to often infuse his music with jazz or blues or sort of a, a an early rock and roll, uh, sort of shuffle, um, uh, but, uh, there was the other, another one that was notable, um, was Walk on the Wild Side, um, was, as, actually got an, an Academy Award nomination, and there's a real broad sweep in its melody. Um, it's funny, I, when I came to listening to this, um, the swagger that you hear in this melody for Walk on the Wild Side almost could be a Western theme in its own until it kind of picks up into a real... Uh, kind of uh, bluesy jazz kind of um, uh, tempo, but Walk on the Wild Side is another one that's really notable. I think from his uh, from his jazz period. So, uh, his jazz uh, stylings are, are different, as you can tell, than someone like a Henry Mancini. Um, and they were scoring movies around the same time. Um, the, the Elmer Bernstein trademarks kind of persist, where he has a, also a lot of big brass, um, a lot of confidence um, in, in the, uh, the motion of the, the music. Um, and like I said, there were also, you heard in Walk on the Wild Side, these big uh, tutti statements from the orchestra, like these all-together statements from the orchestra, kind of punctuating everything. Um, so it's uh, it's really infectious. Where uh, The Henry Mancini jazz is often a little more laid back. I think it's a little more, sometimes it can be a little more like uh, dinner party jazz, whereas the Elmer Bernstein jazz stylings are... Uh, a bit more in your face. Um, and they kind of, like I said, they, there's a swagger to it, which is kind of hard to, um, hard to fight. <laughs> um, definitely is toe tapping in that regard. <laughs> um, but he, uh, so he had, you know, like I said, he, these, these jazz colors, he was infusing into many scores and it's interesting. He had interviews where he talked about, uh, working on these. And, and I think he had been asked about man with the golden arm specifically, um, Where they had kept mentioning as a jazz score and he didn't want to call it a jazz score because he said the way to jazz is it's improvisational and you can't really do that matched against film you have to be precise with your timings and he talked about how what he was doing was basically taking the colors of jazz and blues and just infusing that in his scores for films so it's not technically a jazz score he kind of wanted to be specific about that even if it borrows from that musical idiom but, you know, in, in, as far as mixing it with an or, a traditional dramatic orchestral score, one that I thought was really great is Anna Lucasta Casta from 1958, where he gets to mix these sort of dramatic strings uh, while there's also jazz kind of playing through it. And so you can hear a little bit of that here as we go back and forth between the, uh, the melodramatic uh, orchestral side with the strings and then into uh, a little bit of that uh, toe-tapping jazz. So one of the uh, interesting things about Elmer Bernstein's comments about his own music and uh, when he had talked about jazz, he'd been interviewed and someone had said that uh, that it's interesting how the jazz in film is often associated with quote-unquote sleazy topics. Um, you know, whether it's um, Walk on the Wild Side where it's about a house of ill repute or it's about Man with a Golden Arm where it's about the drug addiction. And Elmer uh, Bernstein had, you know, talked about, yeah, he didn't, you know it's it's something he was guilty of but it was just sort of one of those uh, I think he just said it was just a societal thing that um, that somehow it worked its way into our uh, unconsciousness I guess in a way that we are able to associate that somehow when you use those jazz or you know that the jazzy side for some reason it, it does mend well or meld well with something that are more seedy topics I guess which is which is interesting um, and uh, that kind of you know fits the bill for another um, you know, jazz score that a uh, jazzy score that he did for the Carpetbaggers in 1964, uh, which was about Hollywood in the 1930s, and it has a you know a lot of um, characters of uh, I guess uh, shaky moral standings, <laughs> and uh, it, it his uh, theme for the Carpetbaggers um, to me kind of it's like a, it's it's a dirty jazz. It's uh, it's got I feel like a, a a cruel a cruelty to it i think there's there there's an arrogance to the jazz that he um and to the his sound for for the carpetbaggers i think was really interesting but uh you can hear a little bit of that here As we listen to uh, more examples of Elmer Bernstein's um, jazzy scores, you can hopefully get that through line um, with those aspects of his music that I talked about where, again, we have a very rhythmic uh, proponent to the music. And again, it's jazz, so it's going to have rhythm, but also an approachability to it, a confidence, um, and a very big brass, uh, confident uh, sort of overall Uh, demeanor to the music, Um, and you could definitely get that in Man with a Golden Arm through to Walk on the Wild Side and into the Carpetbaggers, Um, and, you know, there were other movies he did at the time, which were lighter topics and required a lighter touch, Um, but he was bringing jazz into other movies, even something like The Caretakers, which took place in a mental hospital, which still has a real furious, jazzy opening, Uh, then there was another movie called Baby, the rain must fall, which starred Steve McQueen as a uh, a rockabilly musician. So, in that instance, um, it's it's I guess it's jazz sort of morphing into that um, early to mid '60s rock sound. Um, and I find it a, a really, uh, a really highly uh, listenable uh, score. And uh, so every time I hear this piece of music from it, um, it always makes me smile. Uh, I can't help but uh, you know tap my toes to this one. Uh, but I want to play a little bit of music from uh, "Baby, the Rain Must Fall." That was a little bit of the of uh music from baby the rain must fall from 1965 uh so as i noted that uh he was still you know um being asked to sort of in, infuse his music with it you know jazz or blues or, or pop and rock uh through the late 60s um there's another one that he did called the gypsy moth which uh gypsy moths uh, which was a movie about skydivers but it has again it's mixes a, a more of a dramatic orchestral styling with a, a jazzy uh, sort of uh, sidebars here and there, but um, you know, as you know, as the '60s went into the '70s and styles changed, and and R and B became you know, uh, and funk became more of the go-to for uh, for movie music. Um, thanks to movies like Superfly and Shaft, it became a bigger deal to have that sound. Um, Elmer Bernstein was still able to supply that as well, and he did that in movies such as McHugh and Report to the Commissioner, which have really great um, funky sort of R and B tracks to that. Um, so, and I feel like it just was a natural extension of what he did with jazz and blues, um, and uh, in and early rock in his fifties and sixties scores um, that just kind of naturally led into that uh, into that sound of R and B and funk in the uh, early seventies. So that, you know, obviously that sound as well, um, you know, retreated, you know, once we uh, get into the late 70s and disco and then the early 80s. And so, um, you know, Alma Bernstein wasn't really called upon, of course, to contribute too much as far as what, you know, a score in a popular mold, because at that point, um, the synthesizers came into play. So most of the uh, films that needed some sort of contemporary sound, they were going to guys who were doing electronic music, or they could, um, they were adapting their style to be more synth- to be more synthesizer based, but what I find interesting is that later in his career, um, Elmer Bernstein was kind of. Uh, moving back into doing those scores. I think there was a real discovery from younger filmmakers who um, wanted to kind of revisit that mold of, of 50s and 60s sounds. Um, and so in movies like The Rainmaker, and I think that was a Francis Ford Coppola movie, and um, uh, Devil in a Blue Dress with Denzel Washington, um, he was uh, adding those jazz elements back in. Um, another one that I was thinking of is A Rage in Harlem from 1991, Um, but I I think these sometimes in these pictures they were period pieces so they took place at the time and so it was appropriate to have them if they were based in 30s or 40s Um, but some of them it was just I think the younger filmmakers going to Elmer Bernstein because they wanted a sound of um, of, of old Hollywood jazz and um, you know he was still alive and at the time and still able to provide that in spades and so it's kind of great that uh Later in his career, he was able to revisit a lot of that, um, and it actually extended to um, some of his dramatic work as well. And that um, one of his final scores uh, was for *Far From Heaven*, where Todd Haynes, you know, had him sort of recreate the um, sort of melodramatic orchestral uh, stylings of a mid-to-late '50s uh, film score, um, which just wasn't done when that movie, you know, was done in uh, at 2003. So, Elmer Bernstein got to be, you know, quite the representative for uh, a golden age sound, but also uh, the the jazz sound of movies from the uh, the 50s and through the, to the 60s. So, the jazz period of his career that started in 55 with Man with a Golden Arm, um, it actually ran concurrent to the other major chapter of his career at that time, which was when Elmer Bernstein became known as the Western composer, uh, when he became the go-to guy for Western movies. And he uh, took it in a new direction um, that still stands to this day. Um, And it really all started uh, with a picture uh, from 1960 called The Magnificent Seven. So that theme of elmer bernstein's for the magnificent seven uh like i said in 1960 set a precedent um and it affected the you know western genre from that point forward as far as the american western um when i you know have basically gone back and read about it and 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 collected so much you know soundtrack music over the years it's very interesting that that same decade um was also the decade that Ennio Morricone came along and uh, sort of gave his own spin on it, which became entirely unique for the, uh, the Italian Western, what they call the Spaghetti Western. And during the 60s, it was really like you had this two-pronged effect with Western films. Um, and so any other composer working in that genre, they're either pulling from Elmer Bernstein's uh, sort of sound for the westerns, or they're pulling from Ennio Morricone's sound for the westerns, um, and it's kind of a mix between the the two. And you know, each composer would still have their own unique spin on it. But those two um, composers, they their work became the pillars of the sound of westerns, and they really persist to this day. Although the Morricone sound has be- is kind of fits a little bit more with the contemporary western, I think, because of its um, small scale uh, use of guitars and, and soloists, things like that. Um, so you don't hear the Elmer Bernstein sound of westerns as much. Um, but it really you know, became you know, kind of the all-encompassing sound of this is what an American Western film sounds like. And again, kind of going to his tenets, you can hear uh, the rhythmic quality is insane because it's it's almost all driven by that syncopated rhythm. Um, which just moves it forward um, and it kind of just propels the whole thing and you're just inexorably pulled along with it. And there's a muscularity to it. Uh, it's just it's a very powerful statement. Um, but it's not powerful, I feel like, in a threatening way. I feel like it's a sitting tall in your saddle kind of uh, powerful. I feel like, again, there's a confidence to it, but not arrogance. Um, it's a proud sound, but it's not prideful. Um, and I, with the, the use of, in his harmonic structure, fourths and fifths, it comes across as just very open, like I said, and sort of open like the landscape of, uh, of the uh, Old West. Now, you could also um, look backwards to the music of uh, the composer Aaron Copeland you know, mainly known for his concert work, but he did some movies uh, as well. Um, but his uh, ballet for Rodeo and and a lot of his um, his work for uh, the concert stage, um, he typified a lot of that sound of the American Western American West through his music, um, and so that harmonic structure and 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 some of that rhythmic quality is what Elmer Bernstein brought into it. Um, but it's interesting. He really did kind of set himself apart because up until then he had done one or two other westerns, but he hadn't really had that kind of canvas to to play on. And before then, um, Dimitri Tiomkin had kind of set the the sound of the of the western, um, and his was more based around sort of a folk song sort of way in a, a sort of a a ballad, like he did for High Noon or for Gunfight at the OK Corral, and it was all about having the the solo male vocalist and, and uh, singing a ballad. Um, and it wasn't so much about that um, real, uh, like, sort of rhythmic uh, quality to it um, that was bright and propulsive um, that really kind of pulls you into it and made it, you know, exciting and approachable. Again, I'm going back to that word of his music is very approachable, approachable and very listenable. Now, following that, uh, the very next year, he did a movie called The Comancheros, uh, so from 1961, and he uh, joked that he called it The Magnificent Eight, (laughs) because he was called upon to uh, sort of provide a a similar sounding score and theme to it. Um, And again, it's um, very broad and propulsive. There's a lot of charm. There's a lot of energy to it. And it's a it's a great score, and you know I I think if you like the Magnificent Seven, you should definitely seek out the Comancheros. Um, But here's a little taste of that score again from the year following Magnificent Seven. This is 1961's The Comancheros. So as with uh, its predecessor, uh, there's a buoyancy in his music there uh, that you can hear. And again, I think that's a quality that's endemic to his music, you know, throughout um, his entire career for most every genre that he wrote for is that um, buoyancy, that joyfulness uh, to, to the themes. And again, that rhythmic quality and the, uh, the openness, uh, I think, of the music. Uh, But he continued to score Westerns uh, from that time forward. It's interesting. That kind of followed his career um, almost till the end. Uh, So following The Comancheros, he wound up doing The Sons of Katie Elder, and he did The Scalp Hunters and The Hallelujah Trail, um, The Shootist. Um, Another one that was a favorite of mine is True Grit from 1969. Um, I had vague memories of seeing this movie as a kid, so maybe that's why it kind of stuck with me. Um, but there's an emotional component to, uh, a bittersweet emotional component, I should say, to his music for True Grit. And I think it's because the main character, uh, played by Kim Darby, sort of, um, there, there's a sadness to her character, but there's a feistiness and, uh, her father is, is killed. Her father's murdered and she hires John Wayne's character to help her find the murder. Uh, now this film was remade recently uh, with Jeff Bridges. It was a Coen Brothers movie and, um, Interestingly, they used mostly adaptions of uh, existing uh, standards and folk songs um, in the score, um, but Elmer Bernstein sort of, again, brought a, a broadness to it. He brought his, um, you know, the big theme to it, but there is a a, a bittersweet quality. There's almost, there's, uh, her theme is sort of more, it can become a lullaby at times, and and there's just, like I said, a bittersweet quality to it, because her character's still gone through this loss, and even though the movie has uh, great action sequences and some humor through John Wayne's uh, perpetually drunk character, Rooster Cogburn, um, you still kind of get the sense that she uh, she still has that missing piece in her life. Um, but what's interesting about this is also the the, the main theme is expressed in a vocal. Uh, by uh, this was actually the title song was sung by Glenn Campbell, um, and that was something that. I think carried forward as a tradition from the Dmitry Tiomkin years. So, you know, like I mentioned, when uh, Tiomkin hits at the standard as Westerns having to have a ballad, um, you know, in High Noon and some of the other movies. And while that kind of went away, you know, it still kind of, it persisted from here and there, and, that, uh, and maybe it was just because of, at the time, you know, studios could still look and say, well, if we can make a hit song out of this, that would be awesome. Um, so if we can take that theme you wrote, and can we put some vocals to it, some lyrics, um, then that would be great. So that happened with True Grit. It happened with the Sons of Katie Elder and a few others. And so this is the, uh, the theme from uh, True Grit, um, as sung by Glenn Campbell. Someday little girl The sadness will leave your face As soon as you've won Your fight took it just a stun days, little girl You'll wonder what life's about But others have known you battles are won alone. So you look around to find someone who's kind, someone who is fearless like you. The pain of it will ease a bit when you find a man with true wit. One day you will rise and you won't believe your eyes. You wake up and see a world that is fine and free, though summer seems far away. You will find the sun. One day. So uh, that's kind of like I said, that carries on the tradition of the, uh, the ballad that was associated with westerns, um, you know, early on in the genre. And then, but adds in um, making it, you know, uh, sung by a popular uh, vocalist at the time. Um, and Glenn Campbell was popular for country. And um, so that, again, sort of was a great tie. in it, it still, you know, harkens back to the, the heritage of, of music for, uh, for Westerns. But then um, by having it, you know, uh, sung by a popular vocalist, it kind of gives them an angle for radio play, essentially. Um, and that kind of worked out to their advantage there. Um, and it's interesting to note about like making a tune popular. And um, I should mention that um, Elmer Bernstein's music for the Magnificent Seven wound up uh, being associated with commercials for the Marlboro Man um, when they used to have commercials on television for cigarettes, if you can believe it. But a lot of people uh, really became familiar with that with his theme for the Magnificent Seven because of uh, the commercials for the Marlboro Man. Uh, writing a Horse and coming over the hill, um, which I just you know I forgot to mention up until now. Thinking about the the popularity of a tune, Uh, so just about True Grit for a second, um, I I wanted to point out that that you know one of the great things about you know that um, Elmer Bernstein's qualities, his 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 uh, capacity as a composer is to have that really indelible tune. Um, and you know, kind of break it down and use it in um, a multitude of, of guises. Um, it also uh, can express that bittersweet quality that's the sadness that's felt um, by Kim Darby's character, um, as heard in this cue here called "Papa's Things." Now, another thing to note is that kind of brings to mind another quality of his music is that um, Bernstein was also known as a, a great composer for smaller um, intimate dramas. And because uh, he could also kind of scale back uh, the band essentially, scale back the orchestra to almost a chamber orchestra, he could focus on soloists, solo flute, solo violin, um, and really kind of spotlight. Just a soloist um, in a scene um, that makes it feel so much more. Um, as a viewer, you feel so much more connected to that character. Um, there's an intimacy to just having smaller groupings, um, and that was another thing that he was capable of. And he, one the most notable of of his accompli- accomplishments in that uh, sort of sense was the *To Kill a Mockingbird* his score for *To Kill a Mockingbird*. Now to uh, just wrap up uh, *True Grit* real quick, I wanted to play one more. Uh, selection from it, uh, which is um, uh, from a cue called "Ride for Life," uh, which uh, really pumps up the action a lot, um, and it takes the theme in a real aggressive, muscular direction. Um, but I think I think it's it's a real powerful cue uh, from the the climax of the film, and I just thought it was, it was great to again point out um, those grand big. Uh, statements from the orchestra from everyone playing together uh, to punctuate the action and then that driving rhythm um, that he will uh, carry forth in this cue. was you know in 1969 and he continued on doing westerns through the 70s um he did uh Cahill uh uh, U.S. Marshall he also did The Shootist um which uh kind of brought to a close John Wayne's career as as a western star and it's interesting because the film is meta in a way because it it uh his character that he plays is already at the end of his life as a uh, as a gunman, and then the movie kind of plays off on John Wayne, the actor, sort of at the end of his uh, long career as a uh, an icon of uh, of the genre and for American film in general, and. It's interesting. So the for the Shootist, uh, a, you know, uh, Bernstein brings this propulsive quality. So again, you're going to get this rhythm, this propulsive quality, a lot of percussion, um, a lot of confidence, a lot of swagger, and uh, but then there's also some moments in that score um, that are really raw um, and very tragic. Um, but here's the uh, the opening title for the Shootist, 1976. Another highlight from that same year uh, is another Western uh, called From Noon Till Three, uh, starring Charles Bronson. And what I find interesting about this is that it still has really great melody and a real great tuneful quality. Um, but it almost sounds, there's parts of it almost sound like music that would have been written and played in the late. 1800s or early 1900s uh, in this amazing 19th century type of instruments. There's parts that almost sound like a a saloon piano Um, and again really uh, this has small uh, uh, instrumental groupings um, that there's none of the brassiness there's not the um big wide open uh, sort of space to the music this is um it, it's almost it's got a little mischievous quality to it um but uh it's i think it's another highlight of his and it's it often goes unnoticed but uh this is a little bit of music from from noon till three the late 70s um, and uh, early 80s, the, the Western genre itself started to sort of fade as being a staple of the, of the cinemas. So that chapter in Albert Bernstein's uh, career naturally uh, kind of came to a close. So it wasn't that, you know, he, uh, it wasn't anything that, that uh, he did, and I'm sure he was actually kind of happy to move on from it. But um, I think it was that um, Western sort of fell out of fashion um, and those that were made were more of the revisionist type of Westerns. I think they were sort of maybe holding up those myths um, to the light and maybe kind of stripping them bare. Um, but he was called upon to score at least two more Westerns. Um, after that, uh, 1986, he scored The Three Amigos, starring Dan Aykroyd, Martin Short, and Steve Martin, a comedy. And then he also scored Wild Wild West in 1999 with Will Smith and Kevin Kline, a comedy f- fantasy kind of thing, you know, based on a TV series from the 60s. It's interesting that they're both, you know, comedies that, you know, that needed Elmer Bernstein's music, especially Three Amigos, because Three Amigos um, takes the plot of The Magnificent Seven in a way and kind of posits the, uh, the setting of, well, what if there were actors who had to actually behave as you know, the Magnificent Seven in a way. And so there are three stars who are silent film actors of Westerns have to actually save a town from bandits, even though they're just actors. Um, it's it's a movie that absolutely needed Elmer Bernstein's music. Nobody else could have done that. Nobody else could have scored that movie like Elmer Bernstein. And uh, But it's interesting that um, he's he was asked to revisit and he was able to revisit those uh, tonal qualities of the, the Magnificent Seven for both Three amigos. And Wild Wild West, but only in a comedic way. It's interesting that by that point, having an unironic presentation, a Western um, presentation with his music, I probably wasn't seen as feasible. Uh, I'm sure that studios would feel like that just wouldn't fly with modern audiences. We wouldn't accept a straight-ahead, unironic Western with a big, propulsive, rhythmic, brassy, tuneful Elmer Bernstein score. Um, and yet... It was perfectly fine in 1960 with Magnificent Seven and the year after with Comancheros and and so on. Um, So I find it interesting, you know, to think about as a composer, um, if you have a long enough career in Hollywood, um, you might wind up artistically back where you began. And I think, you know, Elmer Bernstein's career stretched, you know, from uh, the early fifties up until when he passed away in 2004 and he was scoring movies up to the year before he died. And by the time he was, his career was in those later years that he had been able to revisit the Western, his jazz stylings, and then even some of his dramatic orchestral stylings with far from heaven in 2003. And so, uh, which incidentally that was presented in an unironic fashion. Um, But it's just kind of interesting that he was he was able to revisit that and that's what the directors wanted from him was to revisit that sound but i wanted to play a little bit of the three amigos so you can kind of um hear the callbacks to the magnificent seven so that you can hear how um, the features of his music have persisted um, that you're still able to get that sound that it's an elmer bernstein score from those qualities that I talked about, uh, the approachability and the, and the rhythm and, um, and the, uh, the openness of it. So you can hear a little bit of that here in the Three Migos. Interestingly enough, The Three Amigos is, an, is a crossover between uh, two of those chapters in Elmer Bernstein's career, uh, one, of course, being the Western, the other being the comedy genre. Um, Elmer Bernstein became known uh, as the go-to guy for comedy for about 10 years, uh, following Animal House and on to Meatballs and Airplane and Stripes and Ghostbusters, and um, so he he wound up being the go-to guy, especially for, for directors like Ivan Reitman and, and John Landis, and uh, The Three Amigos represents a, a cool crossover between those two periods of his career, that it was still in the comedy genre, but he got to hearken back to his, uh, the Western sound of his career as well. So that's one of the things that is interesting about Elmer Bernstein's music is there's, you know, such a consistently high quality to his music, but there's also a consistency of sound. I think his compositional style, I think, you know, um, in terms of those tenets that we've talked about that you can hear... Through his music um, from decade to decade, uh, whether it was the 50s, 60s, and on up to the 80s, you're still getting those tenets of the rhythmic quality and the tuneful quality and the openness um, and, uh, like I said, the transparency in terms of the uh, the orchestration and uh, just the real approachable, listenable quality to his music. um. And uh, I wanted to kind of go into his uh, the comedy period as well, although I think I, I, I'll probably save that for another episode. I didn't want this one to run too long. But I wanted uh, for anyone who is, you know, kind of new to discovering, um, you know, these, the, the, uh, the composers in Hollywood, especially the, the notable composers in Hollywood, just to get an idea um, of Elmer Bernstein's sound and what he brought to uh, the art. Uh, especially uh, in the jazz and the western genres um, that uh, that he composed for what became evident to me uh, the more that I would read about Elmer Bernstein read interviews with him watch interviews with him is how much his those tenets that I talked about the qualities in his music are basically aspects of his personality and that it's very difficult in film music as a to, to have your personality come through in the music. Because the project's dictated by, you know, the, the, your, your, your music's going to be dictated by the project, whether it's, you know, in terms of the genre and whether the director, what the director wants, the studio wants. But with Elmer Bernstein, I mean, his personality came through in every movie that he scored. Um, and I and as I learned about him, it's, it really is kind of evident in who he was as a person. Um, and that he was, you know, uh, very open and friendly um, and and uh, approachable and had a lot of energy and was vivacious and um, he, he was a strong you know defender of of uh, the the underdog and um, you know uh, became well known for for he, he was politically active and um, also fought for the rights of musicians in Hollywood um, so you know he it's it's funny when you know it, as I looked back once I you know started listening to his music and dug into it and kind of worked my way backwards and learn more about him. It's like, you know, the the music typified the man and, uh, it's, he couldn't, you, you can't separate the two. It's like when you got Elmer Bernstein to provide music for your movie, you got Elmer Bernstein, the man in the music. Um, so I wanted to read, uh, a response that he gave to an interviewer's question one time, which I thought was really, uh, insightful, but he was asked, um, one time uh, that uh, whether it's the, this is from a book uh, called Music for the Movies by Tony Thomas. It's the second edition here. Um, and uh, the question was, isn't it the composer's job to sympathize with the subject? Um, and uh, Elmer Bernstein replied that the job of the composer is really varied. You must use your art to heighten the emotional aspects of the film. Uh, music can tell the story in purely emotional terms that the film itself cannot uh, he goes on to say that the uh, the visual language uh, is basically intellectual uh, that you can look at an image and you have to interpret it what it means but if you're listening to something he says uh, if you're listening to something or someone and you um, understand what you hear then that's an emotional process and he talks about music is particularly emotional if you're affected by it he says you don't have to ask what it means and so I think that comes through in his music being particularly emotional I want to thank everyone for listening today. I hope it was uh, fun for you as it was for me to take a deep dive into uh, composer Elmer Bernstein's music for uh, the Western genre, in addition to those uh, movies that he heightened uh, with elements of jazz as well. In closing, I want to address a few inaccuracies. I noted in my earlier statements uh, in this episode, mainly that Far From Heaven was a 2003 release. It's actually 2002. Also, I pronounced Aaron Copeland's uh, ballet work as Rodeo, instead of Rodeo, uh, which I blame on uh, living in Los Angeles uh, and uh, hearing about Rodeo Drive all the time. So that's my excuse for that. Um, but if you're interested in learning more, um, check out the site ElmerBernstein.com. Uh, it's a good resource about his career and accomplishments. Um, music in this episode uh, was composed by Elmer Bernstein uh, from the following movies. Uh, Zulu Dawn uh, The Man with the Golden Arm Walk on the Wild Side The Carpetbaggers uh, Baby the Rain Must Fall A Rage in Harlem The Magnificent Seven The Comancheros True Grit The Shootist From Noon Till Three And Finally Three Amigos If you'd like to send any comments or questions You can email the show at Podcast at gmail.com Find the blog at Ascordasettle.blogspot.com and also on Facebook at facebook.com slash If you listen to the show by way of iTunes, feel free to leave a rating and a review. That's always appreciated. Thanks again for listening.